It's Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs. Let's start the show with Lewis Tennant. Here we go. Guests and interviews that you're looking for with creators, innovators, and so much more. For all episodes and further info, verbalhighs.com is the place to go. The right of year. Hi! Welcome to Dr. Tennant's Verbal Highs, a podcast podcasted weekly from a kitchen bench in Kingsland, Auckland, New Zealand. My name is Lewis, I'm the host of the show, and here is the bench. Boom! That's some theatre of the mind for you folks. That's also some, uh, well it's not quite field recording, but I did see in the students out for some field recording today uh, on the portable recorders for the digital audio production course. Go and find some sounds, I said, and go and record them well. Uh, post-production nerds, uh, audio nerds, uh, film nerds, we'll probably all know there's four elements to soundtrack. There is atmosphere, sound effects, dialogue, and music. And we're in the game of capturing three out of the four, not so much music in the course. So I said go out and convincingly capture the sound of a coffee machine. But the trick there was uh, don't capture the sound of the room where possible. So just the sound effect of the barista working their $6 and not quite hot enough poorly extracted magic. The second one was to capture dialogue in a space of their choice. How do you capture voices that sound great that don't capture things such as that? Unless you want them to, of course. You could have the room sound the way it wants. I'm getting too deep now. Uh, The third one was... Oh, that's right. Go outside. Always a challenge with the wind in the audio capture game. And capture either um, a building site or roadworks. And then the fourth, the sassiest and most challenging of the options, was go and get a sound effect. Uh, don't tell us what it is when you come back, but have us identify it straight away based on how beautifully you sonically caught that sound effects moments. So that was fun. It was very, very fun. And then I got home and uh, Jacinda Ardern had um, taken commandment of the Labour Party, which is fantastic uh, news, I guess. I, I say I guess because I, I got home another uh, night recently and, and just turned on regular old school broadcast television and thought, how the hell do any of us engage with this anymore just this talking head politicking dry balls uh commentary that is the i guess long-standing delivery of political messages um not that i'm one to not get stuck in there and figure out what's going on but i thought how the hell do we how the hell is this model um viable leading forward you know especially with younger people who are so saturated by Um, media options now let's face it media is the delivery platform for political messages how does it all work i'm 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 dumbfounded i'm I'm dumbfounded i'm 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 open to commentary (laughs) on the on the topic does the whole system need to change the shitstim as uh as uh, the rusters call it i'm not sure but i I mean it's it's you know, a few weeks out, changing your leadership. What would I know? I mean, I said that uh, the whole, I thought the whole two-day thing was um, 
was not the greatest PR move. And then Rob, the PR man from last week's episode, pointed out it was fantastic PR. And I went away and really thought about that. And I thought, he's so right based on all the reasons he kind of posited about it. Bill English, well, not really where my allegiances lie in general in terms of um, the camp he's in, but, you know, more pointedly towards the man. If if that, I mean, that man has the charisma of... Um, of charisma, remember that horse? We, he can't do it. He can't do it. And he's a, and he's a very staunch Catholic with very staunch Catholic beliefs. And the Catholics are the organised religion analogous to organised crime. My best John Lydon voice, and we all know what they're up to. It wasn't very good. I probably ostracised my staunch Catholic. Listenership there now. My guest today is Nick Atkinson, former Horner, or current Horner, but former Horner in terms of the story uh, that unfolds on the podcast for Supergroove. Whether or not uh, you know the band or you know um, New Zealand music or you know music in general, it's just a great, interesting story about um, things that happen early in life that are really successful, um, and then they perhaps fall off for a bunch of reasons, and then how you... Um, compute all that stuff in the years uh, that follow. For those who do know, um, Supergroove were a absolute behemoth of a band. And the you know going so far, far back, I'd say I was a little kid. Well, not a little kid. That's wrong. I was a I was in my early teens, mid teens, coming into really um, getting to know music when they popped off. And they were they were quality, but they also appealed to a really wide uh, demographic. And then they made a bunch of moves, including firing. Shefu, which seemed mad to me at the time, even as, as I say, a sort of a grommet um, who'd eventually learned about all this stuff a lot more. But um, Nick's a really insightful, honest and interesting guest. He's done a bunch of stuff aside from um, The Groove, uh, including Sailing Around the World, which we talk about. We talk about boat etiquette. We also talk about Casey Kasem, um, and I make a comment that I wasn't very comfortable with when I listened back about, um, oh, he didn't do very well in late life, did he? Did do very well late in life. Uh, well, it actually wasn't him that didn't do well late in life. It was a whole lot of messiness that um, transpired based around family and money and death politics, which is awful for his legacy. So Casey Blissom died in 2014, um, and the family continued to feud in that greed fashion from what I can work out, but you can Google them tings. Uh, shouts to Halitel. I am not imbibing their product, but I am happy to pass on uh, little gift bags or little suppers to the guests. Uh, it was nice to have Dave pop in here and drop off some more product uh, and say it was his subscription to the podcast. Like the show Verbal Highs at uh, Twitter or Twitter at Verbal Highs, Twitter at Verbal Highs at Twitter, Twitter at Verbal Highs, Twitter at Verbal Highs at Verbal Highs at Twitter, Twitter at Verbal Highs at Twitter. Cheer, bro. Enjoy the show. Verbal highs, real heart, real soul, and no lies. Just perfectly wise guys flying by. This is just going to be you talking to me about me, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, I think <laughs> it's, I mean, your, I, it's I, your journalistic background. Yeah. I know those aren't as comfortable as them. No, nah, they're all good, mate. No, that's very it's beauty. I'm just gonna, it's a cracker. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. Hi. Hello. Oh, don't get all serious now that I'm. No, um, how, much, how loud will I be? At the, oh, about that loud. I hope I don't get too much louder than that. <laughs> you know what you're asking about um, back then when was it, it was uh, 1997 to early 2000 wow okay yeah yeah which was those kind of was one of the I guess halcyon days periods for student radio like 
and, and New Zealand music on radio too, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everyone going for that youth yes. ch- chocolate milk drum and bass yes. market. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, I guess we'll just um, launch into it. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure I say that every week. Uh, so I was really happy. Where do you practice, by the way? Well, I'm going to my friend Tim's house. Tim's the lead singer of Hopetown Brown, and he is in, he's kind of Mount Eden. He's on the corner of Balmoral and Mount Eden Road. Right. So, I don't know what I was going to go with that. This is a good start. My first segue gone already. We'll get to Hopetown Brown in a second. Yes. Um, I was really happy when you said, I'm a big fan of the podcast, and I've listened. I, I just kind of, I put this out there, I started November last year, I purposely not really promoted it, and I, I just wanted it to grow like that, and so you'd, you'd come across it and heard a couple. Well, I really enjoyed Dubhead's one. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he's just such a ledge. He is. And, uh, you know. And he's a great raconteur. He's got some stories, man. And yeah. he loves music. God, he loves music. Yeah. And he takes such care of the music that yeah. he loves, you know. And, and did you see me post that up? Or where did you come across that? I, good question. Good question. I think I, it might have been on Dub's Facebook page. He might have thrown right. it up there. But it could have been you. Because I think we're Facebook friends, aren't we? We are, I found it. So the thing yes. with friends of friends of people we've never met, but connect through the industry, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> the hobby. And the we love. all want more friends. We all want more friends. Be a friend. Yeah. I used, I got to be, admit, a few years ago, I used to notice when friends came and go on Facebook, but I thought that's a bit unhealthy, so I don't know how that is now. <laughs> Hi, Nick. Lewis. Hi. <laughs> it's good to meet you. And it's after hearing you, you on too. the radio for a lot of years, actually, when you, before you did the breakfast show. It's good. Um, it's good. I realise I know your name also not from um, some of your better known 90s exploits, but your journalistic capacity on Radio New Zealand. I'll just quickly introduce you. Um, my guest is Nick Atkinson. You've produced and presented music content for Radio New Zealand, written for The Herald, um, climbed mountains for leisure, cycled long distances, uh, and sailed the world for seven years. Um, also a musician and saxophonist, a reed, a, what do you say, a reed player, a saxophonist? Sure. <clears throat> who forms one half of Hopetown Brown and Hi. has band practice after this, um, and one-eighth of Supergroove? One-eighth, yes, in the eyes of the publisher, because we have two drummers, but there's seven members of Supergroove, all in all. What, we have two drummers depending on gigs, not Well, on no, no, we, I guess we've had two drummers. So right. we had Paul Russell until a bit of a contentious moment in 95. Yeah. And, but he, since the reunion, we, we, we uh, made all the songwriting splits... Equal, so yep. we changed them all because Carl and Joe got the lion's share, uh-huh. which in some ways was fair enough because they did the lion's share of the lyric writing and composition. But so, so you've gone for the Fat Footies drop approach to, yeah, 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 well, yeah, sure, sure. You know they did they did done that done that from back in the back in the days, kind of always split it because it's similar. It's a huge size band, right? Oh, there's some great arguments to splitting the royalties evenly between any creative group working in any endeavor. I think. Yeah. Um, the moment the money becomes uneven and the moment money is at stake during the creative process, it can kind of bend it a bit. But the problem with bands is if you have, I don't know if you have a real key songwriter in your band. I don't even have a band. Like, say, Tom Petty is in your band. He's definitely not in my band. That doesn't exist. You know, it's going to be hard to give the bass player the same royalties as Tom Petty. Agreed. And the bass player might, I mean, gosh, he... Lost one bassist player to a drug overdose, I think, and then he had enough, another bass player leave and come back. So if they were getting even royalties, it would have been a bit of a headache. Well, even if the, I mean, on a most 
kind of dry business level if the brand is Tom Petty and he goes through bass players being Tom Petty, that kind of makes sense too, right? Yes. Whereas Supergroove or Fat Freddy's feel to me more like that some of their parts. Well, it's interesting. I mean, Carl was definitely the visionary, you know, yeah. and Joe was definitely his right-hand man creatively. And so those two were a little bit apart from the band. They led the band. They seemed to, they, they, you know, Carl had the vision. Yeah. And Joe, the determination. Uh, but when we got back together, it had sort of become apparent that one of the reasons why the songs were so widely listened to was the hard work of the band members. Yeah. And so it was, it was awesome. It was a lovely gesture for Carl and Joe to say, hey, let's, let's change these splits, you know. I want to get more deep into talking about Supergroove back in the day later on, because I reckon it is, and I mean, like, that's why I made a point of asking you, because the last thing I wanted was to have you over to talk about this project that started 20 years ago that you felt like you've talked about in nine out of ten interviews. But you said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. But we'll get to it later on. <laughs> sure. Um, I just wanted to ask about the how you fell into the um, kind of journalistic broadcasting side of things here. I see you were nominated for a radio award in 2014. I mean, that's... Not many people get nominated for those. Mate, producing I, musical chairs? Yeah, uh, yes, yeah, musical chairs special, yes. And, and I actually, I don't want to blow my own saxophone here, but hey. I, I think I did win four radio awards oh, over okay. the years. Sorry, and was no, actually no, nominated for one. Hang on, I won four and and nominated uh, several times, which was lovely. Mm. Um, and for producing, for producing, yep, yeah, for producing for RNZ for Radio New Zealand. So you were with them for a number of years, oh, almost five, and not now though, right? Not now. And so how did you fall into that? Training in, the, in that world or just through the music scene? Or I really love radio. Yeah. I think radio is brilliant. Uh, there's a lot of people who say radio is going to die. The internet will kill radio. I, f- I feel like it's pretty clear that hasn't happened. I think part of the reason is every single car is manufactured with a radio. So that's good. And I think the thing I love about radio as opposed to the internet yeah. is that... You've got this live stream of audio. Doesn't matter if it's in mono or stereo. It's coming out, and it's like a baton, or it's like a hot potato being passed from presenter to uh, ad producer to promo director to continuity jock to songwriter to documentary maker to news bulletin <laughs> yeah. presenter. And if one of them drops the potato, the person will turn off and go to the other station. So it's it's massively exciting in that way. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure from your days in broadcasting, I did a little bit of live stuff on Radio New Zealand. I always did a little bit of live stuff every week, but the bulk of my stuff was pre-produced. But I loved the live stuff. And you really felt that if you were going well, yeah. you could almost feel the audience accumulating, like people stopping to listen when you're busking on the street. But if you start playing bum notes... Yeah. People just start walking away. Oh, look, pre, pre, I mean, stuff like student radio, you got no idea of figures, never took part in the radio survey, and, and I guess in my real prime and stuff. But yeah, you did, you just got a feel on the ground, not only during the show and after a show. Yeah, and a good live show, people call in a lot and all of that. Yeah, they're like, they are, they're, you're right, they're totally in of the moment. That's another thing I love about radio too, that often the internet doesn't have unless you're streaming live, is it's your location, your city, your experience at that moment. It's not podcasted from another week in another city or whatever. If it's done well in that regard, it's a real connector to, um, to you know, exactly where you are. I mean, I suppose in nowadays, if you're a young kid, you might take the, the, your, your phone to bed and, and watch videos on YouTube. Yeah. Um, when I was 
eight years old, I took a little transistor radio yeah. and I listened to Casey Kasem's Top 40 yeah. Countdown right till the end. Yeah. And had no energy the next day, you know, and just ate sandwiches yeah. with my eyes closed. <laughs> and so I've always loved it from that moment onwards. He, and he came to a bit of an unfortunate end, old Casey. You know what? What happened? It was oh, fascinating s- finding out about him, wasn't he? Though, yeah. I, wearing his, uh, reading his obituaries, I, w- I was like, "Wow, he's was he from Lebanon or something like that? Really? Or somewhere in the Middle East? Um, or and he had an anglicised name. That's not his real name. I thought. I also thought there was some. God, we're putting ourselves on the spot with Casey Kasem, um general knowledge. I thought there was some scandal that is he. I don't even know he passed away. Is he dead? Oh man, I hope I'm. <laughs> oh, you know. God, I made this. I made this mistake on Radio New Zealand once, and actually ended up on someone died. I, I ended up on Media Watch. You know the program yeah, where yeah, they yeah. point out uh, terrible things, yeah. gaffes. Yes, and um, we we realised quite quickly that I'd made a gaff. But yeah, I did make it to Media Watch. It was a it was a low point. Well, look, uh, two things I'll say about about the two things that Casey Kasem and Live Radio just and talking about old technology and so on is um, uh, one day in Wellington, I walked into an op shop about. 10 years after Casey Kasem had been broadcasting because they used to play it on the ZM network in Wellington. Yes, yes. And I never thought about how they'd get it in to play it. Can you, Do you know how they? what I found in the op shop, how they used to get the Casey Kasem shows in? They were pressed to vinyl and sent around the world. No way. So this op shop in Wellington, obviously ZM or whoever it was, the company had taken down all the old Casey Kasem shows and they had like nearly 10 years of Casey Kasem weeklies on vinyl. That's the skill that he had, I think, is... He really made you feel involved and that you were getting some little behind-the-scenes look. And he was very aware that radio is like a one person talking to one person, not one person talking to yeah. 200,000 people. Yeah. Now we're up to our long-distance dedication. There it is, the number one song in the USA on American Top 40 for the fourth week running. Hey ya, by Outcast. My name's Casey Kasem, reminding you to keep your feet in the ground and keep reaching for the stars. But so look, so but your how I fell into radio was I've I've always loved it, and particularly when I was working on sailboats for a living, uh, often in quite far-flung areas, um, no internet, just rudimentary email, um, you would get the BBC, you know? Yeah. And if you hit a good program, it was magic. Well, we'll talk about somewhere where you need a bit of connection. <laughs> and also, I felt, like, I felt like I could do it well. And yeah. I must say, I was frustrated when I sometimes tuned into radio programs and often I would hear a one-on-one interview in the studio with that person's record playing in in the background, yeah. which made it hard to hear the music and made it hard to understand the person, and gave it kind of, t- yeah. I was I thought I, sure, I get you, I get you, you from can, your, from your yeah. aesthetic kind of music point of view as well as the journalistic side. You're like yeah. this, this could sound better. I think. Look, I I I'm not a mad fan of music beards. I think there's times when you can use music to to kind of heighten the emotion. D- of, dance music shows late at night. Well, look, I, if you're doing continuity, I think it's all good. Yeah. I, I, but if you're doing an interview, I'm kind of like, is that really helping? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and also, why not listen to what the musician's saying, and then when the music comes in, wow, I've had some music. It's like eating lots and lots of chips. The first few chips are great. Yeah. But if you've got all the chips underneath the conversation, it, it's, 
it's not as exciting as that salt and vinegar. Now you're getting into basic economics, which is the law of diminishing returns, I think. Yes, that's exactly right. And what I'll say stylistically about the radio thing is um, agreed with something like RNZ or you know Kim Hill or long-form journalism, but I think the reason we used to do it, I used to do it on Brecky and stuff, now I think about it, is um, you want to sort of keep that pace up. In the mornings? Yes, yes. So I think different, different horses for different courses, right? Absolutely. <clears throat> so you have all these ideas about it. That's different to getting on RNZ. That's something I want to do one day, at least make a doco for them or something. Do you just go and knock on the door or have you got a friend who does stuff with them? Or Oh, look, I did have a bit of, <clears throat> I did have a bit of good fortune um, in so far as Kim Hill engaged me to be a foreign correspondent from an island called South Georgia. Well, how'd you, how'd you even make that connect? Well, I guess I did know Kim Hill's producer, Chris Burke. Right. Noted musical author. Yeah. R- runs wrote, audio culture now. Runs audio culture, wrote Blue Smoke, wrote the definitive Crowded House biography. How did I meet Chris Burke? Well, not on the island, clearly. That's a really good question. I mean, look, I think he's, he's just, he, um, he actually lived opposite my mum. Right. So there, there is a nepotistic aspect to this. But anyway, I was in South Georgia... And Chris, Chris heard that I was in South Georgia, I think from my mum, yep. and said, "Why don't we, why don't we do a foreign correspondent with Nick? Because South Georgia is a very remote island. It's, it's uh, over a thousand kilometres southeast of the Falkland Islands. Yep. Uh, there's no airport there. It's too far for helicopters to fly. And this is where your boat was based. Well, I initially went went on a voyage to South Georgia, and it was a year long project. But we only spent probably two and a half weeks in South Georgia waters." It's glaciers coming into the sea, it's spiky mountains, it's huge seal and penguin colonies. It's wow. spectacular. The sea temperature is, comes up to about two and a half degrees in summer. And it's, the sea is below zero in winter. It doesn't freeze for some reason because it's always moving. But when, if, if it snows, the snow hits the sea and doesn't melt. That's freaky. Wow. And then the snow builds up on the sea, not melting, so you're like in the middle of one of those um, service station slushies, kind of. It's what it looks like. It's it's cool. It's cool. And so I was there, and so... So Kim, anyway, foreign correspondent for one small island, it's like, uh, you know, well, uh, I, look, reporting I, in from South Georgia this week. Um, I only did it... I only did there's it, three penguins. Yeah, I, only, I did it twice. I did it once one year and once another year. Yeah. And so Kim, with her foreign correspondent slots, I think, I'm not sure if it's still like this, but every morning I think it's from a different country. Yeah. And then I... I continued to do that. I probably over the course of four or five years did four or five spots. I did it from some from an incredible place called Meteora in northern Greece, which is wow. outstanding. Yeah, and I did it from Na- Narvik, no Bodo, Bodo in Norway, which is north of the Arctic Circle. When I was on a long cycling trip there, and I think I might have done one from the Mediterranean somewhere. Is other than Greece. Well, so this isn't your sailing days. This is, I can't keep up. This, this is your was, cycling days. This was my sailing days. But, so- but you put the cycle on the boat when you're sailing. Exactly. And are you sailing for... Oh, we've got to close off the RNZ thing. So you ended up doing stuff based on that hook up there. Yeah, and so when I moved back to New Zealand, uh, and the catalyst for that was the Super Groove reunion in October of 2007, because yeah. I never really meant to live overseas working on sailboats. It's just... I, I, I started to say yes to these opportunities and suddenly I'd, I'd been away for four and a half, five years, however long it was. And um, when I got back, I always wanted to um, work for Radio New Zealand. I, I listened to a lot of radio when I 
came back to New Zealand. I really enjoyed it. I was a little bit vexed by what they weren't doing. Yeah. Um, I felt like they could have been going to more shows, taking the tape recorder out of the out of the studio more yeah. more often. Um, I th- thought they could have been covering bands uh, with more than one interview. Yeah. Talking to the band's colleagues, friends, parents, families, yeah. associates, trying to get a you know, so so more of a magazine documentary style produced show than just talk to this person in the studio. Well, that's and what play that piece that's what music. really motivated me, and I suppose is this I, around the time Music One Hundred One came about? Or? Music One Hundred One had already been going for a while, so the template was there, and I was merely a contributor to Music One Hundred One. Yeah, um, but it's a cool place to work, Radio New Zealand. There's there's um, a lot of collegiality in the office. Uh, when I was there, the music desks. We're right in the newsroom. Yeah. So when big news events were happening, it was tremendously exciting. Yeah. It felt like being in the whole the center of local media. Yeah. Um, I've met some a lot of talent people. there. A lot of talent there. A lot of talent there. A lot of talent coming through. The woman Yadana that made the student radio doco. I mean, I just listened to that again recently. What a stunning doco. And my understanding is she approached them to do it almost on spec, and they got her to do it. And then I heard her doing a mixtape the other week, and just thought, great journalist, great asker of questions, great, great warm receptor yeah, of, of right. guests. You too know, right. and it's interesting. One of my briefs when I worked at RNZ was to find new freelance producers and you know, mentor them yeah. and get them to produce material. And I was surprised how hard that was. Yeah. I thought there would be lots of people, maybe a little bit like me, who were champing at the bit to come in and do it. But I wish I'd known. It was, it, was, it, was t- it was tough to get people to, yeah, right. to be punctual, at, you know, when they met you, uh, to hit deadlines, uh, you know, general standard of writing, presentation, um, That's so funny. I've never and also I, look. I, some people I've never actually, approached them because I always thought it was the opposite. There'd no, just be thousands of people. No. Well, no. look. I mean, the thing is, though, there's there's people who are keen to do it and people who can or can't do it. And yeah. I mean, Anthony Tonin was a great example. Yeah. I I feel like I encouraged him to produce for the radio. He had a cool blog. Clearly, erudite, intelligent guy with an interesting perspective, and he's at the coalface of live and recorded music. And he was brilliant. Yeah. Tono was great. Yeah. Um, and Tom Rodwell, the blues man, made a cool radio program for yeah. us. But I've got to say, there were plenty of others who I thought would be great, and they just, they just wouldn't show up. And look, here's one thing. It's like, the first thing I'll do is I'll say, would you like to meet next week at midday, come up to the office? Would that be okay? Yeah. Now, if they blow that meeting off that morning... Probably not really yeah. that interested to do anything else. Yeah. Or if they're 15, 20 minutes late to that meeting, I'm like, well, this is the first meeting. What, how, how's it going to be when the deadline yeah. happens? Yeah. And so, you know, that, a lot of people just did not get past that level. And hey, look, maybe they had a terrible parking experience. Maybe they were sick. Maybe that's too harsh. But I kind of like, you, you've if got you're going to start yeah, investing yeah, yeah. time, they've, <laughs> yeah, they've got yeah. to show up. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I was thinking about other stuff like that just when I've had guests on. I might have been like, when I've had a show, I'm like, yeah, come up and chat, come up and chat. And this person seems like, you know, like we were talking about before the, being a raconteur or whatever, like Patrick is, and yeah, yeah, okay, great, 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 yeah, yeah, I'll come and chat to you. This is not to produce stuff, just to be a guest. And they turn up and you suddenly realise you know, spot the fear in them. You know, this person who, this person who when the mic's off is bang, blah, 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 and then it's just like cold feet. Yeah, and look, we we saw that happening at RNZ. One of the challenges with uh, starting at Radio New Zealand 
uh, if you haven't done a huge amount of radio, is that Radio New Zealand will often have a recording engineer recording your interview in the studio. Yeah. So there's another person. Yeah. So already, it's like if you're trying to paint a cupboard door, you might get a lovely finish, but if yeah. there's someone watching you do it, yeah. you're going to get dribbles, you're going to miss spots, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so... No control room here, folks, just Nick and I. Yeah, that's right. So it's Lock and eyes. So it's chilled. So it's chilled <laughs> yeah. as. That's why I'm doing it at the kitchen bench, bro. And, and so I did see some budding producers really fall apart, yeah. which was really tough to watch. Oh, look, even, all my, even my years of, you know, admittedly, things like Basie FM and Student Radio and da-da-da, they're not in million-dollar studios or whatever. Um, even with, I've only been up once for an interview at RNZ, and that was for the student radio doco. And even how dead those rooms threw me a little. I could so dead folks for non-broadcasty types is how soundproof you can get a room. I could hear the blood rushing through through my head and down my body, and it's like even that's a little off-putting when you first go in there. Eh? Yes, yes. It's like the deadest dead room in the world. Um, so. Why did you leave? It sounds like a total passion project. Oh, it's a wonderful or job. Or is it like the Hotel California? Like- no, look, it's also like it, it's also like a key to the city. You know, yeah. Radio New Zealand. Just you, you can get into any gig. You can yeah. go to any event. Yeah. You know, um, the you know media providers and content creators all want to all want to know you. You know, so so that's a lot of fun. So, and, but why did you why why did you knock it on the hip? Well, five years is quite a long time. It is, and I felt like. I think there's, pl- I mean, I'm 42 now. I think there's plenty of uh, white males older than 40 commenting on music that in large parts created by people who are 35 and younger. Lots of them on podcasts as well. <laughs> Which is fine. And look, but I, I look, to be honest, well, why did I leave? That's a really good question. Essentially, I, it's the first office job I'd ever had. Yeah. I'm not amazing in the office. They're sitting at the computer. Yeah. At the desk. Um, I'm a real outdoorsy dude. Just like even Dando, and um, and also I, I, it was a job for life, which kind of scared me a bit. It wasn't like a rolling contract Didn't or anything. Fall, falling into that cliche public servant kind of. You're on. Yeah, well, yeah. Gliding and, on. And I, um, <laughs> yeah. And look, also I'm. I also ha- have another project uh, that has nothing to do with media and really nothing to do with music. Yeah. Um, which is I want to. Uh, set up my own uh, modest ocean-going yacht and wow. sail to Patagonia. Set up mean build from scratch, no, or, no, no, or renovate, or just just get prepared. Wow! And I, and when I was working at RNZ, I didn't even have that boat, and I knew if I was serious about this, I actually had to put a lot of time into it. And um, and of course, it's the perfect antidote, isn't it, to working in the office to dream yeah. of sailing across the ocean? Yeah, yeah. It's, and so. Um, what a cliche. Well, I was thinking about that before, amateur psychologist time, even though it sounds like I quickly did the maths in my head and it was a few years after Supergroove. Um, <laughs> cycling around solo and being somewhere like on a yacht and on distant islands and so on would seem to be the perfect remedy for someone who got churned through the music industry very, very sort of quickly and full on in their teen. Because you just said you're 42 and I thought, shit, I was a fan of your guys when I, I pretty much felt like I was a little kid at high school. And I'm 40, so you, you guys are pretty young as well, right? We were really young. You know, Carl, Tim, and I started jamming when Carl was 14 and Tim and I were 13. Yeah. Uh, we were the Little Boy Blues Band. Yeah. And we had a very small repertoire yeah. of songs that we would play and extend. Someone said you were young, young folk playing young foggy music. I quite like that. Well, yeah, yeah. It's funny, <laughs> you know. We, the, the, blues brothers, the Blues Brothers was a massive... Um, 
movie for us. Yeah, Rubber Biscuit. Oh, I love I've got all the records. Yeah. Um, Rubber Biscuit, what a tune. Hey, now, hey, now, hey, now, Actually, I was lucky enough to be able to play that very tune on Matinee Idol oh, really? um, as a guest. I lost that record. I don't know where that went. The briefcase full of blues? Yeah, that was great. Lesser known, man. Lesser known. I've, and because I played that tune on Matinee Idol, I had to do a bit of research on that record. And I was amazed to see that it came out before the movie. Right. And I think it's still one of the highest selling blues albums of all time. And was, so, I think, a number one Billboard album. So the, so the Aykroyd, what's, um, what's the name? Um, Belushi? Belushi. Aykroyd, sorry. I want to no, say. Dan Aykroyd. Look, they, so they were, actually, they were actually a band, band before the film, as well as actors. Yes, I think it kind of came out of Saturday Night Live and then became this awesome band. And I think... Dan Aykroyd in particular was he's a he's a Belushi. We, I got the names wrong now. I've said Aykroyd. No, it was Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd and John oh, Belushi. Right. Belushi. You're right. Okay, you're in there, mate. But I think <sighs> I, Aykroyd in particular was a real blues aficionado. So they got the Stax band. You know, yeah. Oh, it's a great, the, it's a Booker great T, album. You know, killer musicians. Booker T and the MGs, essentially. So you guys start playing that stuff. We'll get back to my psychological yes. evaluation in a second. Um, is that why you ended up taking off around the world on your own? Well, I guess the thing about a band. Uh, for a band to really work, uh, the band has to come first. Yeah. And otherwise, you really can't make the most of opportunities that come your way. And especially with a seven-piece band, uh, you've really got to be very... Um, you've just got to go with that band, go with the current. Yeah. Um, and everyone has to feel like that because uh, it's really d- difficult to get seven people in the same room. Yeah, uh, to agree on everything as yeah, well. Yeah, and it's easier when you're young because you don't have jobs, you don't have families. Yeah. You know, you get off school at 3.30 in the afternoon. Yeah. So there's a bit of time. Yeah. So obviously we had that on our side. But that continued relentlessly until I was 22. And I feel like I had some perspective that, you know, gosh, here we are, we're playing in Bombay, India, which yeah. is now Mumbai. Yeah. It was Bombay when we were there. Yeah. We're, here we are, we're playing in Helsinki, Finland. Yeah. We're we're We're... We're doing three gigs on Manhattan Island in New York City. That's crazy. You know, uh, also we're touring around New Zealand. We're playing to thousands of people. Um, I mean, I remember one gig in Dunedin. uh, I think it was the first time we played Sammy's. And our little cash bag just was not big enough. Yeah. That we'd been carrying around. Because we'd we'd done the Palmerston North to six people, you know. We'd been struggling to get... 60 people to the dog club, you know, on Newton Road. Yeah. And I remember in Sammy's, and suddenly we had to empty out some other bags so we could fill these bags with money. And so that was tremendously exciting. But because but the band just stuck in it this... It just spread so quickly. You're in this band. Yeah. And every, you know, when they say jump, you say how high? You know, let's, let's do this. Let's, there's nothing else in the world. No relationships really outside the band. Uh, no commitments outside the band. Yeah. And, it, and we became a... a Priority for BMG. Yeah. Uh, they own RCA Records at the time. I think they've been, all the labels are kind of amalgamated a bit now. But I mean, a huge presence of a label in New Zealand at the time, anyway, irrespective of the overseas connections as well. Yes. And, I, and so we would go on these tours, and we, I specifically, especially Carl, Tim, and I, we would go to these towns. New Zealand has a wonderful, um, uh, range of secondhand bookstores. Yeah. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that has as many secondhand bookstores yeah. as little towns in New Zealand. You yeah. go to a little town and there might be three or four of them in yeah. a tiny little town. So we would hit Hawera or um, or or Napier yeah. or Nelson, and we would go to the secondhand bookstores. Yeah, that's what we would do in our spare time. Carl would go to the philosophy section. Yeah, Tim would go to the sci-fi 
adult fiction section. Yeah. Tim loves a good novel, very well read. Yeah. And I always went to the mountaineering section. And and it was funny, the first mountaineering book I ever bought was called No Place for Men. Yeah. Because that title just really made me think of touring. <laughs> Drive, I wondered where we were going with this. Driving endlessly, <laughs> you know, driving endlessly. Yeah. You know, you're always hungry. You always need to go to the bathroom. Uh, so what, is a place for boys, not men? No, no, I just think it, it was just a bit, it was just a bit <laughs> arduous, you know. Um, and especially when you feel like you have no control. Yeah. And so as you get older, you kind of, this feeling of no control, it kind of does get to you. But I found reading these mountaineering books a real, a real, um, <coughs> a real, Escape, and then you're driving around the South Island, and you're seeing these unbelievable mountains. Yeah, and I guess that really fired my imagination. I was about fifteen or sixteen, and then I really just absorbed mountaineering literature. After so you that. weren't doing any mountaineering before the band. It was a result of visiting secondhand bookstores, going to the mountaineering section, and looking at the hills in Wanaka. Yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, because <laughs> yeah. I guess I, when I was a young guy growing up, you know, I was fascinated yeah. by saxophones and by. Uh, cool jazz music and African music and uh, girls that I didn't know what to say to or didn't know how to approach at all. Yeah. And mountains didn't really figure in that. <laughs> yeah. Sex, drugs and, and mountain ranges. And so, yeah, and, and, and then when we... So as, as, our, as, as my passion for mountaineering grew, wherever we would go on tour, I would try and catch a glimpse of a mountain. Yeah. And I once convinced our Australian sound man called Spag... Um, who was a, he was a diamond geezer spag um, to take the truck with all the backline in it to the Eiger in Switzerland, right. which involved about a six hour detour. Really, but it was sort of on because we were going. Yeah. We were in the general area, but and I and I told him all about the Eiger and about the the climbers who had tried to climb it. And but how does that? You're talking about seven people in a van who um, often aren't eating very well. And the sleeping quarters aren't that great and stuff. Surely stuff like taking a six-hour detour is not great for the dynamics of seven people who work as one? Well, we had two vehicles. I I don't know what I would have told you. We had two vehicles on that leg. (laughs) So the band were going in one van and Spag had the truck. So I was riding with with Spag in the truck and convinced him to to do it. And uh, very memorable it was. Okay. And how did you go from playing um, blues, classic, classical, not being classical literally obviously, but kind of classic blues music to... Being, I guess, at the time, arguably a more modern funk kind of dance kind of hip-hop thing. I suppose it was that uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers album, Mother's Milk. And yeah, then, right. and then that was, did Blood Sugar Sex Magic come out after that? Yeah. And Flea didn't do any slap bass on that record. I remember we but got... But you we guys got... were more... I'm getting nerdy here. Tell me if I'm wrong. You were more traditionally funk-funk than them. Like, you weren't as rock, were you? Or... That's true. That's true. Yeah. But I feel like those two records... A few uh, more horny horns. Those two records definitely... Because, uh... look, it's just a... It's whatever you're listening to, right? Yeah. When Carl, Carl turned Tim and I on to this incredible blues music, you know, to Booker T and the MGs, to Otis Redding, yep. to James Brown, yep. you know, this amazing, amazing music. And... Um, and and we listen to that music, but of course you're listening for new music. And then I I, I remember hearing that Red Hot Chili Peppers cover of Higher Ground, yeah, you know, the yeah. Stevie Wonder song. Yeah, it's been on a few other funk compilations as well. Yeah, its own, and I was just like, merits. whoa, man, this is awesome. I mean, we were we were 15. We were target demographic for that business. And they came out around that time, I think 1990, and just everyone I know who saw them in New Zealand said they were amazing. What do you think of the Peppers these days? But kind of, I don't know. I mean, I. 
you know, I suppose, I mean, like I never listened to country music when I was 15 and my mum did and I found it quite hard to deal with. Now I love country music. Yeah. And so my tastes have changed. I think if I was 15 again, I'd probably still love the Red Hot Chili Peppers and most of what they do. Yeah. Um, and I can't help but admire a band with that longevity. Totally. You know, and, um, you know, I don't know that I'd want to be on a desert island with Anthony Kiedis. But then he may, he probably wouldn't want to be on a desert island with me, you know, so it's all good. Yeah. So, I mean, as early as I think I read somewhere like... Uh, Flea, on the other hand. What a dude. You'd be on an island with him? Oh, he just looks like such a cool geezer. Yeah. He looks a bit more survivalist, maybe. I don't know. He's um, lean as well, eh? Yeah. yeah. And he's yeah, probably vegetarian. Right. Yeah. Get up that coconut tree much quicker, I'd say. Um, so even as early as something like 1990, when I was, God, I would have been 13, so you're probably 15, you're playing in nightclubs and so on. How's that, how's that world? How are the folks about that? Supportive of the career? It's a, sort of an odd thing getting home from the box at 2am when you're 15. The parents were definitely supportive. Um, I suppose as well because we had some success before high school was over. Yeah. I mean, we did our first national tour. I was in sixth form at Selwyn College. Yeah. And the PE department actually let us take the uh, PE department mini tramp we we put, chucked it in the back of the truck and took that all around the country, That's all the way down to Invercargill. That's how you guys were, right? Yeah, so we you borrowed the PE department's tramp mini for your tramp, first national And we tour. stuck it beside the <laughs> tram riser, and there'd be queues behind the mini tramp. For, for audience of all or these band. Nah, band members, you know, band members waiting to do the bounces. And it's, it's, it's mega stupid when you see it. And, it. and it contributed to one horrific stage dive in Christchurch at the Chinese Cultural Hall. Of what happened? A pumpkinhead fan. Um requested that we move the mini tramp to the front of the stage so he could do a majestic stage dive off the tramp and the crowd parted and he went splat on the floor and actually cut his head open. It was pretty nasty. Of the era, stage dives. Legendary one. I've checked with people years later to check it did, it did actually exist the way I remember it and that it wasn't my memory had, had um, embellished it. Um, first tool show ever in Wellington. I don't know when that tour was. Feels like ninety six, ninety seven. Oh, I think I've heard about this. Guy yes. goes off the top. I what? I saw it. I oh, was really? Lo- I was looking wow. that direction when it happened. Goes off the top, <clears throat> the top tier or whatever you call it, the gods of the town hall into bottom crowd. Um, pulled it off. Whoa. Um, another one. <clears throat> or perhaps he didn't. Perhaps how the, that's how the end of the story goes. Another one was uh, Primus at the Union Hall. Feels like about around the same era. Um, guy jumped. Uh, much much less uh, of a drop, but crowd parted like the sea onto solid concrete. Oh, concrete! Dangerous, right? Oh, but fun when you pull it off. Um, the tracksuits were very of the era too. I was looking online today and thinking they're very, they're kind of Jordan coloured. They're they're suitably baggy. Now where does all I digest? But you guys, you you kind of you got it all right for the moment. Yeah. So where who was? Bunch of 15, 16 year old boys. Arguably, not everyone's going to have the best style considerations in the world. Who was responsible for all of that? Was, oh, well, was look, it BMG kind of? No, no, no. I mean, combing you and no, no. BMG were definitely reactive to what we did, and I think one of the reasons the band sort of splintered and then broke up was we didn't have any real uh, leadership or mentors that we could kind of call upon for decent advice. Yeah, and that was partly because the vision of the band was so strong. What about Stuart, the, your manager? Well, Stuart, we parted ways with Stuart really when we started going international. Yeah. And, um, and Stu- I mean, Stuart's a prickly character, you know. Uh, Stuart and myself never really got on. Yeah. Um, he, I th- I've never really th- 
I've always thought he thought I was a bit of a plonker. Yeah. Uh, and I always found him kind of quite intractable and hard to understand. Yeah. Stuart can speak with his hands. He, he, I know we're not in the studio, but he would he would say something like, "This just needs a little bit more." And then his, the hands, the hands would move. moving, folks. Yeah. And oh, that's what it needed yesterday. What is that? But Stu, Stu, yeah, no, Stu was a big part of it. But I think Carl really has to take the credit. Yeah. Carl really had the vision and the determination and the and the laser like focus, which he still possesses. Um, there's no doubt about it. And Carl. I don't know if it would be correct to say that he sees things in black and white, but he will make very absolute decisions. Yeah, and so which that, I could imagine with, like you say, the numbers of people and stuff would be for better or for worse, depending on... Well, I think that's what you need in a leader. Yeah. And I think Carl would be the last guy to say that he was a leader now. I could be totally wrong. Yeah. Stiz, K. Stizzy, as we call him. Yeah. Six shooter Slim K Stevens. So there wasn't tension through those years. You just listened because it was like, "Well, this is a good, a good idea. Let's do it." Yeah, was there tension? No, it was. I mean, it was. It, it was pre- we were pretty keen. We were pretty, yeah. I mean, sure, there were there were moments where where we we'll get to some of the, we'll get to, we'll get to, we'll get to some of the, the, the yeah. more controversial decisions in a second sure. towards the end. Um, so BMG uh, pushing this thing overseas. You're doing weird stuff like. Um, who knew that that Supergroove New Zealand band was sold like thirty thousand copies of the album in Indonesia? Did I read that? That's right. Yes, I've actually got the Gold Cassette Award, uh, which is pretty pretty dope that we got in Jakarta. How, how does that work with um with that machine that is the old school music industry and to an extent today? Did you guys actually see any well, money like, look, money I, from all I, of this? I think yeah, whenever mid- I ask people, this is like, no, I didn't see any money. I think the mid mid nineties were great for <coughs> for for people selling recorded music, and that by and large, that was the big record labels. Biggest, the, biggest ever. The CD cost two bucks to make. You sold it for thirty three yeah. ninety five. The margin was ridiculous. You yeah. could make them so damn fast. Um, and and but no, we didn't see really any money from it. But what well, we well, did, who sees the money? But no one ever tells well, me. What I, we, I need to get someone from a record company. I guess there. the way that the way our deal was structured, um, and I these numbers may not be dead accurate, but I think Supergroove received twelve and a half percent of the recommended retail price. Yeah. Um, but we had to recoup the cost of the album from that twelve and a half percent. From recording it and stuff. Yes, and, and, and promoting and then, it. And so they sent us around the world. Yeah. We went to 29 different countries. We spent uh, nine months of um, 1995 in the Northern Hemisphere and the rest of the year in Australia. They accommodated and us. And it's all going on your tab. We had theirs. some great yeah. lunches. This is then, great crayfish. Oh, that's where I discovered how to put pesto on spaghetti made yeah. at some <laughs> fabulous Italian restaurant yeah. in Melbourne. And did you not know at the time it was all going on your tab? Oh, well, no, we did. I mean, there was we, we understood that. And um, we were, and look, it was. It's interesting. I think. I think you've got to. I mean, we mentioned the Fat Freddy's drop again. Uh, you know, they completely changed the game by owning the owning everything. Yeah. Being their own label, just having a distribu- distribution deal with Rhythm Method. Yeah. Um, you know that, that different that, era though, different timing. We could go on about all of that for not days. That, not that many years. Not that many yeah. years apart. And look, you could have done that. There's no. There would have been nothing stopping a band in 1995 doing that. Yeah. Um, but um, look, I to be honest, I guess the the records we sold in New Zealand would have raised quite a significant amount of money. But God, we were on the road for a year, eight, seven guys with a <clears throat> with a with a tour manager and a sound man and often a driver. And um, 
what an experience. You so know? yeah, that's why it sounds like you didn't start to feel the pressure of touring. Like I joked about before, sometimes just meat pies and sleeping crooked on the bus is enough to tip people over. Yeah, I mean, look, certainly some some of the band members became more homesick than others. Um, I think. It's not so much the pressures of touring. I think it's more that feeling that you just don't have any control over your life. Yeah. That, that's, that can be a pretty potent feeling. And yeah. I think that contributes to the demise of a lot of successful bands, you know. And, if, and especially when you're young. Um, you know, I was 20 during, in 1995. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I guess when you're 20, you're lacking a few emotional bones, you know. Yeah. And so if I think about the decisions we made then... We were kind of these quite cold-blooded, uh, moderately sociopathic businessmen. <laughs> we, you know, we wanted to sell more tickets, sell more records, Rep- make, be- Rep- make better music. Reptilian businessmen with the funk. Make better music. Yeah. When really the questions we should have been asking when things started to, started to go wrong were, how can, we, how can we get on a bit better? How can we structure this so we're actually just getting on a bit better? And, but with I that think you've done never, very well up until this point. Seven kids in their tw- late teens to twenties, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, and that's that's partly th- because Carl was such, and is really such a charismatic, intelligent, interesting guy. You know, and so when he talked, people listened. You know, sometimes you're walking down the footpath with a group of people, yeah. and someone is just in the middle, and people walk around that person and gravitate towards that person. Carl's that person. Right. Does that make any sense? It does. Like he sees... Like I, if he I, was... I get that vibe. I mean, he, that's why he's a frontman, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and it's funny because now he really doesn't really want to do that anymore. Well, um, you know, hey, yeah. life can't be the same thing all the way through. You see, this, no. then everything started to go wrong. What started to go wrong? Well, I think, like I say, oh, what started to go wrong, gosh. Oh. I suppose, look, from, from where I sat... Um, there were four of us really driving the band forward. You had Carl and Joe, mm-hmm. yeah, who were who were, or five of us. Forgive me. You know, Carl and Joe. Four of us. There were four. Carl and Joe were, you know, the creative hub of the band. Joe made all the videos. Carl produced the records. They basically wrote the songs. Yeah. Then you had Ben Shasha, the guitarist. I mean, first of all, I think one of the unsung axe men of New Zealand. I mean, Supergroove sound more than anything else. I think is Ben's guitar. It's unbelievable. Oh, got me thinking, yeah. Um, and and what an extraordinary player. And yeah. you know, with Hendrixy roots, and, but very. Oh, anyway, but a kind then, of a metal tone for the time. And then I was the I was the treasurer of the band, and I was the management liaison. So I was the point of contact. Yeah. I was kind of the sub manager of the band, and 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 that role became more important as the musical direction of the band changed. And saxophone became less a part of that future. Now, what that meant for Tim and Shay... Hang on, what do you mean there? Why was sax... Are they like no more sax... Well, there's, not, there's no saxophone on our second album, Backspacer. So what were you doing there? I played keyboards. Oh, right. And very averagely, I might add. Shit. But um, I, I was a fast learner. Oh, well, medium. <laughs> um, your instrument. But so, but so Shay and Tim... We're not the didn't do all the graphic designer artwork. They weren't the treasurer. They didn't direct the videos, and they didn't produce the records. Yeah. So Shay and Tim was the trumpet player, yeah. and Shay was the lead singer. Yeah. And they did. They didn't have a huge amount of creative input into the band. Not to say that they didn't have any, but so when we started touring relentlessly, but we're not making records anymore. We're just touring. Yeah. And so my job suddenly becomes quite a lot bigger. I'm yeah. carrying around accordion files. I'm on the phone all the time. Uh, I'm always talking to Carl and Joe about what to do next. Ben's having to constantly churn out artwork, design. 
Tim and Shay, they're just hanging out. So they start to feel, I think, a bit disinterested. Yeah. And so consequently... I know what you mean, because something like on the road environment, you just twiddle your thumbs if you've got nothing to do, right? Yeah, and also I think... I don't this know... Is, this is pre-playing uh, a game on your smartphone for 12 hours a day. Yeah, and so... And also it meant that Joe, Ben, Carl, and myself ended up together a lot talking about stuff. Yeah. And Shay and Tim weren't really that involved. Dynamics started to develop even just accidentally. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I also don't want to ignore our drummer, Ian, but every band needs an amazing drummer. Yeah. And Ian is an amazing drummer. And he was a bit of a rock pig at that time. Yeah. And, that, and also Ian had the wonderful quality of not ever bearing a grudge. Yeah. So Ian and I roomed together. We didn't really get on. We're very different people. Um, so consequently, there would often be friction between us. But in the morning, Ian would always wake up and say, mate, how's it going? As if nothing had happened. And that meant that I could, because I would hold a grudge tight to my heart and f- furnish it with <laughs> heat and venom. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Ian, not like that. And so anyway, so yeah, so, so Shay and Tim just found themselves a bit on the outside. And that just, that just slowly, that was something that happened slowly over the course of about a year and a half. Yeah. And I guess you guys didn't really realize the implications of getting, you know, you pretty much got rid of the part of the dynamic duo that was the front of the of the band from an audience's perspective, you know. Must have, how, 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 did it, how was it um, seeing Shay's rise following? Yeah, well, what a, what a coup de grace, you yeah. know. Like we were fluffing around with the second album and bam, Chains came out number one. Yeah. For weeks. And must have been a little, was everyone a little like, uh, oh. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And look, to be honest, <laughs> I was never really in favour of firing Shane. But and so when that started to be a moot point, because Carl and Joe achieved everything they set out to do. Yeah. When it became clear that they wanted to get rid of Shay because they didn't think his voice fitted with the new direction of music that yeah. they were producing, um, my first feeling is, God, if they're going to get rid of Shay, I'm next. Um, I better try and learn synthesizer. Um, which, if I could have had my time over again, Lewis. I wish that I'd said, guys, I'm off to play sex on chains. No, you know, no, no. That would have been, should have been my next move. But no, no, I, I, I wish I'd said, guys, why are we doing this, man? This is not cool. What was the new sound? You see, I but don't I was, know. That's how, that's how popular the album was. What was the new sound? No, I probably moved on by the I guess it was kind of a kind of slightly overwrought um, kind of progressive synth pop. Kind so of not, power not even pop. kind of funky going synth pop. After Traction, what was it called? Backspacer. Ah. And then Pearl Jam ripped off our album name. About really? ten years later. They called an album Backspacer. Intentionally or just no. by flow? Well, yes, intentionally, they <laughs> totally. <laughs> but yeah, it was called Backspacer. It has some it has some alright tunes. It's got some real stinkers in it too, I reckon. And it's got some very indulgent lyrics in it. But at the same time, Carl is one of the best producers around. Joe and Carl are great songwriters. And so it some, sounds like you sort of went gold on that record. Raw, raw sort of dancey to sort of like this is our kind of, I don't mean the, actually the genre prog, but this is our more kind of proggy, our more, uh, I don't know, our more, um, our less dance floor oriented, but more serious project or something like that. I don't know. You, I mean, musicians have a very, very, uh, sometimes they have a very fraught relationship with their back catalogue, you know? Yeah. And so some songs for some bands can become a bit of hard work, you know? Yeah. And I think Carl and Joe probably felt it more than the other members of the band, but say you got to know to understand, which Carl wrote the lyrics for when he was 15. Yeah. Now he's a complicated 21-year-old drinking red wine, smoking cigarettes, <laughs> listening to <laughs> New Order. Reading Bukowski. Oh, yeah. mate, he's yeah. lo- he's way past Bukowski, mate. Well, 21, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, so, yeah. so he is... So 
Yeah, and so that's where the direction change sort of came about, I suppose. Um, early memory of mine, probably first festival I went to without family. I did actually go to a few festivals with the old mum in my time early on. I remember Brown Trout in 1983 was around the time of Sweetwater. is one of my earliest memories. Anyway, I digress. I was in seventh form, and I went to one of those notorious mountain rocks. Um, you guys are on the afternoon. One of the best, just one of the best memories of a show I've ever seen, seeing you guys play. Um, I'm sure I've seen you and some other time since, but then uh, all this time passes, all that stuff happens in the band, and I guess there's sort of irreconcilable differences for a while. <laughs> and then you get to that show at at um, at uh, King's Arms, and I've just moved back to New Zealand. I think that was where the first Reform show was, October wasn't it? October 2007. That was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. It was a crazy night. You know, and the, yeah. obviously the crowd, everyone in the audience was there for that reason. You guys were there. It was, everyone, it was a big deal and so on. Um what did it take to get back there? I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of pretty well known that there are a few divisions following that. So how did we get back to where we are now? Yeah, well, I mean, that was an extraordinary... Uh, when it actually happened, it was really interesting. It was really, really interesting. If I think about what happened in my mind, I don't know if I've ever experienced something quite like it. Because... Uh, if you'll bear with me just for a moment, um, because obviously when the band broke up, it felt like all these missed opportunities, you know, um, we'd achieved so much, these, you know, one of the biggest selling local records of all time, um, some of the biggest concert tours by a local band at that time, um, this incredible uh, taste of international fame and fortune. But we, we played one of these gigs in Manhattan at some small bar. Yeah. And it was some kind of record company showcase thing with funky drinks and cool people and an audience that talked. Um, and um, it was kind of, yeah. And it was a, a, a bit like, like an like industry a, showcase. Like an industry showcase, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like for, yeah, for music industry. Yeah. And so the crowd don't really participate, but you've got to really give it your all. Yeah. And it was us, and I don't know if you remember a band called Skunk and Nancy. I do. With a very the striking female lead singer. Shaved head. Yeah, yeah, and amazing eyes yeah. and spectacular Australian? lips. Were anyway. They? Anyway, I keep going. I, we're, were they Australians? St- stick with your story. It's much anyway, better. so we played with Skunk and Nancy, and um, look, that happened. Didn't seem that remarkable, and of course, no doubt, being cocky young fellas, we thought we kicked their asses. And, um, and I think then we came back to New Zealand, you know, Tim and Shay were out of the band, we recorded the second album, released the second album, we did a uh, record store tour of New Zealand in a... 1967 Humber Super Snipe yeah. um, and gave it away at the end of the tour on Radio Hodaki and then we went to Australia and then Carl said no, I can't do this anymore and we came straight home and we were off on a, quite a big promo tour of Southeast oh, Asia I didn't know that and Australia and so I, I don't know what time of the year that was it was um, I guess that was October that the band broke up of 1996 yeah. and then I think the Grammys is sort of in February or something is it like that? Oh you're testing fe- now I think it is. Anyway, I hadn't really thought about the band that much, and I was at home by myself watching the Grammys, and Skunk and Nancy won <laughs> most promising, won the most promising artist. A few Grammy. years later, and it really kind of hit me then, yeah. like, oh my god, look, yeah. they're there, man, they're there with the biggest stars in the world yeah. winning a Grammy, yeah. and we were totally on that trajectory. I'm not saying we would have been yeah. in the mix, but it was really funny because <clears> when we, we played that gig in New York, we were too. Interesting bands starting out, you yeah. know, sharing rooms, yeah. 
not really getting paid to play the showcases. Um, well, I was going to say on it, trying uh, to make it work, you look, know. And so, so that was, um, so that was, so w- with regards to the band reforming, um, with regards to the band reforming, what would happen in the ensuing years, however many years we were not together, is often ninety six, two thousand six, eleven. Yeah, eleven. Thanks, man. Yeah. If if thanks, I was, man. <laughs> if I was. Um, at a low ebb, you know. Some, yeah. I don't know if you find this, but I find if I get tired or exhausted or hungry, you reflect on the wrong things, or you reflect on things in the wrong light. Yeah, and could have been, would have been those sort of things. Yeah, past disputes and conflicts on a lower, much lower level than where you guys got to. Some of the things I was perhaps pursuing around that time of life, I have. I, if I am in the wrong headspace, I can think that way. Yeah, and I, 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 I fucked that up essentially. And yeah. so often, often, um, not every now, every now and then, someone would get in touch with the band members and say, "Hey, let's do a reunion gig at the power station. Let's do it." And we were never that keen. And then Brent, when Brent Eccles got involved, but is there still bad blood with the two who were ousted? I'd imagine Shay's a pretty past, relaxed. We got guy. past that. Okay, we got past okay. that, and we okay. talked about that. Genuinely got past it. Well, yeah, we've done. Okay, yeah. We've been together yeah. now longer than we were together before the reunion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I was meaning leading up to it. There, so there was no like, well, we have to get these two back involved. And enough time had passed. Enough time had and passed. And to be honest, I think that again, Carl, you cannot underestimate how influential he is to this bunch of guys. If Carl rang up everybody or sent people an email, he's he would be very pers- persuasive for yeah. all the members of the band. Yeah. And so when Carl became open to it. Because he like fell out of love with music, he kind of renounced music. Well, after he the went band into academia and quiet life for a while, yeah. And then and then he renounced academia and went back into music. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of it's. He's, well, that's he's just quite, a, that's just a deeply creative, busy mind, isn't it? He's an extreme You're not guy. Not going to settle on one thing. He's an extreme guy, and he will focus on something to the exclusion of everything else, which is obviously a supreme quality. But, and you know. Emotionally, could be a bit of a character flaw if you're trying to spend time with them and understand them. Yeah, and could be unhealthy for the actual person as well if they, you know, tunnel vision on something for days and days. They'll produce brilliance, but may burn out. Yeah, and I think he did. I I think he totally burnt out. And so when when the email came from Brent Eccles, yeah, uh, I remember I was in the French Alps. I've been rock climbing with my buddies. I was about to go back on the yacht and play some saxophone. Yeah, uh, under a moon ray. And um, and I opened my email. I hadn't looked at my email for four or five days. Careless Whisper. I love that tune. What a tricky tune. You've seen the man on the web. Everyone has. Yes. Okay. And yeah, he's that's, amazing, that's that dude. On, what a haircut. You, that's you on the yacht, anyway. And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, and so when I... And then I, I hadn't checked my emails because I was doing... I was mountaineering with my good bud, Stefan. Yeah. And, and I was looking forward to just... You know, seeing the score in the soccer games and catching up with my peeps, and bam, my in, my inbox. I had like twenty four messages wow. pinging around about the Supergroove reunion, and my first thought was like, "Oh God, no! I've just stopped thinking about this." You know, it's been eleven years, and I feel like I'm finally kind of you just cle- you just cleanse yourself, yeah. and then there's yeah. and so the negotiation went on for a while, <laughs> but then when the green light happened and it was like, "Yes, we're doing it," yeah. a, a switch totally got flicked off, and yeah. all that noise from those past disputes. It just disappeared, and I didn't really realize how much space it was taking up in my head. And it was that was amazing. I yeah. got to say that was incredible. It was just like ah, oh, we're going to do some more gigs. We're going to hang out. Woohoo! So that comes full circle to what I asked you near the beginning. It did affect you long term. That mm. that huge thing that kind of happened and then stopped happening. And then you jumped on your bike and did some mountain climbing, 
cleared your head, but it was still there. Yeah, it was. It always was. You know? Yeah. It's interesting, eh? Um, and it's funny, you know, when you're in a band, uh, music, it becomes, this, it's everything. Yeah. And so everybody's opinion about music is, is their identity. Yeah. And then when you leave a band and you go out into the normal world, people just kind of like music. And you're like, I can't believe you just admitted you like that band. <laughs> Haven't you really considered the ramifications of liking that band? Yeah. And um, and so that was quite nice. You I, th- know? I think um, there's like I think it's just getting like we, the, the whole lot of stuff we talked about is coming full circle. I think us being similar ages and stuff. It's just it's just age as well, and just learning to just learning to put things into perspective. And like that, um, there's that uh, there's that there's the, what's it called the serenity prayer. The like accept the things you can't know. Um, Courage to accept the things you can't change. Something about changing stuff, not to, basically like not not sweating about the past. Um, serenity to accept the things you cannot change. That was a terrible rendition of something I don't know very well, folks. Well, I like- but it's but it's about just um, going. Okay, well that that happened. Let's move on. So, how long did you practice leading up, getting back on stage after eleven years? Oh, Two hours in the garage. It wasn't or? that long. Yeah, we we were down in the lab actually, and we rehearsed for four or five days. Yeah, and. Um, but you guys are known for being tight. It just happened straight away again, like after all that time. Well, we've done a lot of gigs, man. And so we... after 11 years, it's just like bang. All the timing's still there. It took a little bit. Yeah. It took a little I remember bit. You guys but and... I got it. No, it wasn't much. It wasn't really much, you know. And um... You guys in Shihard are my memories of super tight bands of that <laughs> era. Well, look, it's, it's not like... I mean, also, I think, you know, Shay has had an incredible music career. He's a kick-ass musician. Yeah. He was right there. Carl is an amazing musician. He already had the, you know, he's just, he, whatever he touches. Joe is one of, I mean, they're, they're just a real powerhouse, you know. Yeah. I actually felt like, from my point of view, in that band, I always felt like, God, these guys are wicked. I'm really having a work just to stay with these guys yeah. musically. Probably you know? a good way to be. Sure, sure. Scary, though, in the studio. Yeah, and you're still together. You say you're still together now. Is that releasing new material or just still doing no, throwback shows? No, yeah, we are just we are the Supergroove show from from the nineties. Yeah, if it ain't broke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we actually played a couple of Hopetown Brown songs in the Supergroove set uh, in Marlborough uh, yeah. in February. Um, I mean, off the top of my head, I think we've done sixty or seventy gigs since two thousand and seven. So that's so kind it's of excellent. It's yeah, and and I look. The thing is, it's so it's. It's so much fun now because we're not really trying to sell records or become famous or balance this whole career, you know, mad band thing. We're just going out to do a Supergroove show and we get paid well for it. And, I, and, I, and it's and, very well organised by Eccles. And, I, and I hate to be cheesy, but yes, I was, I was about to say, yes, it must be lovely getting a little check for it every now and again. But I'm sure I'm taking, speaking to one of... You know, seven of you that it's it, not say mental health wise, but just everything that happened wise, it's probably been bloody good for all of you. Yes, because yes. it's just one thing that's checked off now and well, is, ha- is nice again. I hope so. I yeah. mean, I mean, it's interesting because we're turning down a lot of shows now. Yeah, um, and that is in large part because some of the band members are a bit reluctant to perform and are yeah. not that keen to perform and don't really feel. Uh, that they can really do it authentically. Oh, well, maybe look. I don't want to. I don't want to get into the where or why for. Well, let's talk so, about then someone another band of that era. You probably would have come across um, fellows I know from Wellington. Um, quite a ragtagged bunch who 
may or may not have really i don't know i don't know i have no idea if if you guys even had anything to do with head like a hole but um yeah i suppose they were did a you bump into them around the traps because i'd imagine you guys would have been a lot of little annoying guys in tracksuits to a band like that well i guess head like a hole were really coming up as we were disappearing i just remember that mountain rock night yeah yeah, yeah. that's true and yeah, also yeah. they played did they play the 96 big day out Possibly. And, or was it the 97 Big Day Out? Is that when? That, that Mountain Rock, that was the end of festival. That was the end. That was before we really started to do health and safety and so on a bit better here. And it was quite a heavy vibe towards the end of that night. For yeah, me, well, that, for me, the young that, punter with the bike, festi- with the bike gangs um, that turned up. And I mean, that festival was a total shocker. We yeah. we did not get paid for that festival. We also uh, got our mar- merch money taken from that festival. I don't, I don't, and yeah, so I, it's amazing, yeah. Daniel Keeley, bless his heart. Rest in peace. Yes, that he. That he was able to continue to do massive festivals and lose a lot of money. I mean, God, Neon Picnic, man. And I don't remember when that was. Oh, never mind. And then, the, and then, the, and then that last Sweetwaters. You know, there's well, did so you? Ever, many. It's actually through RNZ. I I heard about it years later. I just remember a few friends who, you know, people said it was a great festival and stuff. But people in the industry, the same thing, weren't paid. Da 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 da. Um, I didn't realize till I heard years later on an RNZ feature that the gangs took over his, the running of his festival. Did you know that? There's a really interesting thing to Google. Just Google his name yeah, in yeah. RNZ, and it's uh, it's him talking. I think a couple of years before he died. Well, look, he, I, he lost control. He turned up and saw what was going on. He saw that security, um, he wouldn't say what gang it was, had taken over the site, and him and his wife just disappeared, just disappeared to the Coromandel to their house for the next few days while it all happened. That's he just just they just turned the car around, and went. We'll come and deal with this in a week. So that's what happened with Sweetwaters. It's interesting. I think that's his. I think sto- that's his my, story. My, of what happened? I mean, I don't know Daniel that well. I've had a few conversations with him over the years. Um, my feeling was that he was not a details person. Yeah. And uh, you know, I have a huge amount of time and respect for people who pull together big live music events. It's my idea oh. of a complete nightmare. What could be more stressful? Um, but it's it's pretty clear that that. Uh, that Daniel, I don't think, really did the work necessary to make something like that happen. Perhaps with the early ones, he was in the sort of halcyon days of the 70s or something, and it worked for him, and then he took that same, felt like he sort of took that same attitude, and it backfired on him later on. That's what I, what I got from listening to those. Sounds um, like a good program. <laughs> what did you say? Sounds like a good program. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah um, you no doubt listen to this later on to yeah. see how you came across. So you can Google <laughs> that once you get the notes. Yes. Um... So you didn't meet Head Like a Whole Backstage? Uh, no, we never did. And look, they, um, Joe, the bass player, spent a bit of time with, with those guys. Yeah. Um, I think he was actually hanging out with them when poor old Gerald Dwyer overdosed. Yeah. I think he was in the, uh, on the scene when that went down. You yeah. Know? I, I, I ask because I'm going to see that, um, what's it called? Swagger of Thieves. I'm going to see the doco that... Julian Boucher's Ten docking. years of footage. Yeah, I'm going to the... I think it's the Auckland premiere on Thursday. I'm really looking Whoa. forward to it. Whoa. Thinking of that era. At the Civic, um, half sold out on its first day. So I'd imagine there'll be some... Cool. Some um, interesting people of the of the era in the crowd. Yes. Um, so you sort of... Aside, you still keep playing sax and people... Generally musicians keep a hand in it. But it sounds like you sort of walk away from... Um, project projects for a while I might have that wrong But then Hopetown Brown Is that sort of the next big thing That you started to do After following Supergroup Following well, Travelling It's funny A horn section is Is really a band within a band Yeah So Tim and I I mean after Supergroup broke up We didn't talk for a couple of years um, But you've got to remember We met at, at, at primary school When we were eight years yeah. old And had been very good buddies Yeah 
And so that was pretty tough. Um, and um, in that during that time when we didn't talk, Tim came out. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I had no idea that yeah. that was going to happen. Yeah. So that was amazing. Yeah. And um, and it just needed some time to go past, you know, and for things to simmer down. Yeah. And um, and we. And we and because we'd always been mates, we kind of became mates again pretty easily. Yeah. And um, I had a jazz band called Foghorn, which was a trio with my little brother yeah. and a cool bass player called Nick Eagles. Yeah. And we were playing quite a few shows around the place and we kind of got Tim involved in that. And then Tim and I started rehearsing. And it was around that time that my, my tenor saxophone was stolen. And... Um, and... I borrowed an alto uh, off a dude, and it wasn't a great sax. And of course, an alto saxophone is transposed differently from a tenor saxophone. So if you play a C on a tenor saxophone, it's, I think, what is it on an alto? It's a G. I just learned something. I never knew that. So all the tunes for Foghorn, I can't expect Nick to relearn all the bass lines, um, I had to kind of transpose on the fly on the saxophone that wasn't very good. And I really (laughs) felt... That, oh my God, I've been playing this instrument for a long time now and I can't play it. And I had, to, I had a couple of nightmare gigs. One of them was down at Core Celeb, really struggling to play this naked alto and transposing on the fly. Yeah. And so um, at that same time, uh, I was at Rick Bryant's bookstore and he's, of course, a really choice sax player. And he had a beautiful French Mark VI tenor saxophone. But he also had this mysterious instrument in a black case uh, a bass clarinet. And um, when my insurance came through, luckily, thank God, I, my horn was covered. I had enough money left Gotta over keep your horn covered. To, buy a, to buy a B-flat clarinet. Yeah. And so I started playing the clarinet, and then this bass clarinet came up, but it needed to be completely repaired. It cost about 900 bucks back in 2001 or something. And I got this instrument completely repaired, and it played pretty good. And then Tim and I started composing these duets with bass clarinet and muted trumpet. And the, and he was living on Brown Street, and I was living on Hopetown Street. Ah. And so we thought, let's give this little guy a name. Yeah. And it, and Hopetown Brown was born. And um, don't tell me he was at fifteen Brown Street. At uh, thirteen. Oh, okay. I like lived, grey I, I lived house. At, I lived at fifteen and ninety nine. The one next whoa, door. Whoa. Whoa. Anyway. Yeah. Sure well, so well. he was living there, and so so we started to play. So and and he would we would do these Falcon gigs with Hopetown Brown. And we did a few of them. It was all on a very small way. But then I went overseas. You know. So Hopetown Brown's actually about 15 years old? Curiously, yes. And then I went off sailing around the world and then Supergroove got back together. And then Tim and I had to practice our Supergroove riffs again. So we'd get together and practice our Supergroove riffs. But it was also nice to keep writing instrumental tunes and yeah. working on this tiny amount of Hopetown Brown repertoire. But then one day, one day, Lewis... And this was the moment where kind of the lightning struck for us. Tim said, let's try and do St. James Infirmary, which is a kind of a standard blues jazz song that they do a lot in New Orleans. Yeah. Let's try it with you playing the bass line on the bass clarinet, and I'll sing it. And halfway through, I'll start stomping. And so we did that, and it was amazing. It was just like first time we did it. It sounded so damn good. Tim's got such a kick-ass voice. Yeah. And the, there was a natural balance between the bass clarinet. I can't really play any louder than Tim can sing on the bass. 
And whereas the saxophone is quite nasal, the bass clarinet is almost like a sine wave. It's kind of this, woo, and so the voice really sits on top of it, and you can really, it's, you can hear all the definition. They don't fight with each other, and so we're like, man, this is cool. Yeah. And then within a few months, we had a set, and we started doing gigs. And eighteen months later, we had our first record out. And a year after that, we had our second record out. And now, here we are, three years later. So he sings on a number of the tunes. He is the singer. He sings okay. on pretty much every tune. And I sing, I sing a couple of tunes, but we haven't figured out how to do those ones live yet. So he sings all the tune, tunes that? live. Why is that? You have to be... Well, a tune, if you listen to our record, it looks so good. We actually do what is really a reggae song. Um, and I'm, I sing lead vocals on that. But I'm also playing a Hammond organ. And I'm playing the bass line on the foot pedals of the Hammond organ, and it's got a drummer in it, and we haven't w- worked out how to do that live yet. <laughs> yeah. We need a bigger band to do that. I can't play that organ part and sing it at the same you time. You need to um, get a festival show where you get that bit of extra budget to get that bit of extra band in. I'd say Hopetown Explore. Explore would be great. Yeah. And I, if anyone from WOMAD is listening, I've sent in my application. I know I'm not supposed to contact you guys <laughs> after I've sent in my application unless contacted first. Um, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, what a fantastic! We're doing the Waikiki Jazz Festival again <laughs> next year. <laughs> what a fantastic festival that is, Womad! I didn't realize to think. Amazing. I used to unfairly malign it as a sort of stupid old people hippy dippy festival. Maybe I'm now a stupid old hippy dippy, but uh, it's a real cross section of people. You always see stuff that just blows your mind that you didn't even know it existed. I'm so glad that New amazing Plymouth, location. I'm so glad New Plymouth is holding on to it as well because the, oh, it's got to be at the Bowl of Brooklyn. It's got to be. It's got to be, and also it's great to go to New Plymouth and just check it out. You know. Yeah. Buy some thermal underwear there. And, and, I like, and I like how it's like, there's not many festivals like that where you can camp and stuff, but the city's actually like 40 yeah. seconds away. Aye, <laughs> that's know? great. So you don't have to feel like, you don't have to go full feral if you don't want to. Um, so just in the last 10 minutes, I want to hear a bit of, because we're just brushing over about 10 years or so here. I think it's quite, not many people that really take on that sailing thing in a big way. Not you solo, were you crewing on boats? Like How, how did that all come about? Well, I sailing yeah, background. It's in on my dad's side. Um, they're from Wellington, yeah. uh, from York Bay and kind of Eastbourne area, yeah. and um, very adventurous on my dad's side. Not to say that the people on my mum's side aren't adventurous, but on my dad's side, they're pretty damn keen. They build their own boats, sail down to the Auckland so Islands. So sailing in the blood, sailing fully in the blood on my dad's side, and we grew up having adventures on boats, and I really enjoyed it, uh, but I never really thought about it any more than that but then and I would go out sailing if people said hey do you want to come sailing and I'd be a little bit handy on the boat because I'd done yeah. a bit of sailing knew the knots yeah knew the knots and 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 you know was understood that it was going to take a little while you might get wet the boat's going quite slowly yeah. things the islands don't arrive that quickly you know <laughs> and you've got to have that perspective to kind of try and enjoy it and then I suppose we won the America's Cup in 95 and we were on tour I didn't it, it, I hardly noticed that yeah, but then when we defended it here in Auckland in two thousand, some incredible traditional boats came down uh, from the northern hemisphere, and one in particular, a J class called Valshida, which is a spectacular yacht. The mast is too high to fit under the Harbour Bridge. Um, it's one hundred and twenty-five feet long. Now, for us, not deep in the boat. Yes, what's a, tra- what's a traditional boat? Even a traditional. I'm yacht? sort of talking about anything before designed and built before World War Two. Cool. Okay. And so these boats are beautiful, man. They yeah. are beautiful. It's like not many beautiful boats get built today. It's like cars. It's yeah. like cars today. They're all they all look terrible. Yeah. And most buildings. I mean, I don't want to sound like Prince Charles, yeah. but there aren't that many beautiful cars out on the road that were built this year. You know. So, so a sort of more more majestic looking yacht. 
just so gorgeous, you know. And Valchita is very grand. Yeah. She's grand in the same way that the Manhattan skyline is grand. You know, Manhattan, you, if you've been to New York, I've only ever been there once, and I was so struck. I felt like, wow, I've gone back in time, but I'm in the future. And I'm, and I'm in the credits of seven out of ten movies. Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. Well, Valshida as a yacht is a bit like that. It's like, wow, this thing is enormous. It's, it's like a giant bird, but I feel like I've gone back in time a hundred years. Yeah. But I'm seeing something I've never seen before that impresses me like a spaceship would coming out of a cloud. Yeah. <laughs> and so I saw this boat sailing and the 40 guys on board, you know, doing winches. And I thought, that looks amazing. amazing. Yeah. And so the following... So I, so I got into sailing then and I started to get all my qualifications. I mean, having said that, I must have been kind of keen because I had crewed on a boat that had sailed from Auckland all the way to South America around Cape Horn. Um, how, how do you just get into it? Do you have to know people with boats and stuff? And you're saying you're doing all your studies helps. and stuff. You just go like, just join a boat, boat, join a boating club if you not have a boat. And... Look, I think if you live in Auckland and you don't know anyone who has a boat, <laughs> I reckon that's really weird because there's so many people from all walks of life. You know me. Actually, oh, I know someone else with a boat. As yes, well. I'd, love, I'd love to come out. Thanks. See, and we're always looking. If we can go fishing on it, have, can people, we go fishing on yes. it? Okay. People who have boats always want people to come out with them. Yeah. And New Zealand's. I mean. When you go yachting in New York or in Southampton or Saint-Tropez, it's very elite. Yes. You know, only the richest of the rich can afford the berths, the boats, yeah. the crew. Here in New Zealand, I honestly believe it's not like that. I'm not yeah. a huge, hugely wealthy person. I, yeah. I rent a place. Um, you know, I have a car that is quite old. Yeah. Um, but I have my own traditional sailing yacht. It didn't yeah. cost me a huge amount. It costs... It, Takes up a lot of my time. I do two out of three of those things. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like if if I wanted to do that in Central Pay, I'd have to be a banker. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's cool down here. I can't. Yeah. But so there's there's that there's uh, you know getting more experienced at it, doing your um, doing your, your study your, your sailing study, and then sort of going around the harbour or perhaps even you know down another part of the North Island, but actually taking off around the world. That's quite it's quite radical. Was it, you know, as I say, was it you or were you crewing on another well, like boat? It, it was, as we talked about earlier, I loved mountains. Yeah. And so in some ways it was a means to an end going to South America. Yeah. I wanted to see the mountains there. I mean, I was excited about the ocean passages, but yeah. the reason I wanted to go there is I wanted to see a glacier that carves off into the sea. I wanted to see what that looks like. You need to tell me whose boat it was. <laughs> oh, that boat. It was this guy, Hink Hazin. It was to say, did you take your boat and take no, it no. over the side of the No, water? I was just a crew. Okay. I was just a crew. Um, yeah. And so that's it. You, just, you go crewing, don't you? Yeah, you go, yeah. yeah, yeah. And oh God, you got you got. I suppose you got to suss people quite quickly because you don't want to end up with someone you just like. You could be a perfectly nice person; they could be a perfectly nice person, but you end up on this thing. You, you clash, and you're on. You're in. I tell you this: you're a trick, on the man. water for, for for however long. There's a trick. Crazy. There's a trick. If you want to join a boat that is crossing an ocean, yeah, make sure there are some women on the boat. Right. If it's an all male crew, I'd really. I'd really think And why do you say it. that? Just social dynamics. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I watched, there's this great, I'm giving you all this stuff, I'm giving you all this home, media homework to take home. And also the other thing about yachts, they're a little society. Yeah. You know, it could be four people, it could be eight people, it could be a dozen. Yeah. Everyone can hear everyone at all times. Yeah. So there is no bitching. And no. it's incredible about how when there <laughs> isn't any bitching. Right, so you can't even factions forming. You, when, when, it's amazing how well everyone gets on. Yeah. You know, it's, and it, I can't think of another situation where... Self, self-enforced politeness and, and civ- civility towards your fellow man and woman. I mean, it's, so if Supergroove yeah. were sailing across an ocean, I think 
they would have stayed together a lot longer <laughs> yeah. because they would have just all had to socialise. Whereas yeah. Supergroove <coughs> toured from city to city and Carl and Joe went off in one direction and Tim and Ben went off in another. Yeah. And when they came back, they were thinking slightly different things. Having said that, I don't see the Supergroove boys as having sea legs, really. I've got to... Um, I've got, there's another thing I even have to forward it to you is there was this, some series I, I, tr- I just stumbled across it. It was up on TV One On Demand. Um, and it was about New Zealanders falsely um, convicted for crimes. And one of the ones that was more left of centre um, was a guy that went out on a boat with um, the guy that owned the boat. It's basically like, oh, you know, will you come and crew with me? The, the guy that ended up being accused of murder um, was a pretty inexperienced salesperson and stuff. Um, but basically, the other guy goes over the edge. He gets back to shore and they accuse him of doing the murder. Very interesting story to forward it to you. Of what can happen at sea. <laughs> um, and so you crew, and how does that work? You just stop at each place. You um, Well, well on, on that first trip to South America, which I guess was in uh, 98, 97. Yeah, I think it was 97. I yep. turned 24 the day we went around Cape Horn. It was yep. very memorable. They baked me a cake that was thin at one end and fat in the other because the boat was leaning over and the cake was you know in the tin special effects yes and um and then i and the re- and i took my bicycle on that boat yep. and then i wanted to cycle up south america and climb mountains on my way so i took my crampons my ice axe my climbing boots wow and so i set so i caught a ferry from i mean we ended up in a place called Isla Navarino. I think which we might is have a travel book in you one day, Nick. Well, look, I, I, um, yeah, yeah, I would like to. I would like to one day. Yeah, I would like to. And there are some stories to tell. Um, and then, yeah, and so I ended up in Punta Arenas, which is the most southerly city in the world. It's the most southerly city. Well, I guess Ushuaia is the most southerly city in the world. It's the most. Punta Arenas is the most southerly city in, on the continent of South America. And so I started out cycling from there, cycling across Patagonia. Yeah. And I stopped at Torres del Paine National Park, and I changed from a cyclist to a mountaineer, if you can imagine that. In a phone box? Yes, just with a whirl, (laughs) and um, a huge amount of rustling plastic bags. (laughs) And, and, um, And I trekked off to climb a little mountain, nothing, nothing particularly death defying, but it had a view of the incredible southern Patagonian ice cap, which is magnificent i mean the glaciers there are three miles wide and pouring down into the lakes lewis i saw the most incredible things when i was cycling into torres del piney national park down some dusty road um the pampa it's very arid there's even some drifting sand it's only the most hardy goat proof plants that survives there's armadillos and there's rhea which are like an ostrich yeah and condors with three point five. Right, so I can very, very. Yeah, I can picture the wildlife. Very dusty, very, very dusty, very windy, quite cold, very dry. Living on the nutrients of the tundra. And I came around this little low hill and saw one of the most startling sights in my life. And it was a, it was a line of small stunted beech trees. Yeah. The Nothofagus, just like we have in the South Island. And then behind the beech trees, in the middle of the desert, was this enormous. Uh, platoon of icebergs wow and these were three times higher than the trees you know 90 feet in the air of the most unbelievable white and blue out in the middle of the desert and they'd broken off a glacier 90 miles away wow and floated all the way down this lake that stuck its tongue out into this desert 
I mean, you've got to go to Patagonia. So how do you how do you manage with coming back to the city? Like, do you find do you find it a struggle when you first get back? If you if you you know in those no, sort of environments, I love the city. I yeah. love the city. I live in I live pretty central in Auckland. I love living central. My parents both moved to the country, um, and uh, they both married again, moved to the country, and I and I never thought it was a good idea. Um, yeah, I think, I think. Living in the city is great. I love the music. I love yeah, my friends. Yeah. I think Auckland Harbour is outstanding. Love the city. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm nearly done with you. No, <laughs> it's all Thanks good, for mate. coming in. It's all good. Um, the last question I had there is like pragmatic concerns for things like these, you know, these sort of like dreams. You know, what you described, the mountaineering, the taking off around the world in the boat. Um, for a lot of people, it's the sort of thing they dream about doing, but they never do. And so the practical side of it, I thought of while you were chatting about it, is um, how, do you, how do you kind of derive an income? How do you stay surviving when you're doing something like that? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I guess I was living a pretty lean existence before I went around the world yeah. working as a sailor. Yeah. Um, I did a bit of everything, really. I did some TV presenting. I yeah. did a little bit of writing. Just saved up to be able to go and do it, basically. I did a few gigs. Yeah. Yep. And the thing was, working on the sailboats, uh, I was able to salt away a bit of cash, you know? Yeah. And I never particularly. So that's what says you get an income while you're on those sailboats. You sure do. You yeah. sure do. And you're earning. So I, I thought it was deck can for free for free labour oh, kind of some, thing. There were some some voyages like yeah. that, but once you've done a few voyages like that, then you get some skills that are actually worth something. And you go on the and more also, flash boats. It was a very lucky period to be wanting to sail around the world while the America's Cup was happening in New Zealand. So that got me on some boats, you know. I and I was jammy, dude. I was. Yeah. I was in Scotland once. And a big schooner came around the corner as I was having some curry and chips. And next minute, I'm walk, working on the boat. And I got 2000 US dollars up front to start working on the boat. Beautiful. If that schooner didn't sail into, into the Clyde River, you know, life could have worked out yeah, totally different. It feel like I, need, like I need to jump into life a bit more. It's oh, I don't know. Fantastic story. But, so, but to answer your question, so I did, I salted a bit of money away. And I've never really wanted to, I'm not that mad on owning stuff. Yeah. I mean, I have some musical instruments and I do have a couple of boats and uh, and a little bit of mountain climbing gear and a clapped out bicycle. But I'm not, beyond that, I don't really, I really love that line in the Fight Club. Yeah. It's one of my favourite lines in all movies when Tyler Durden says, your possessions end up owning you. And I think it's so succinct. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever move with the records again. <laughs> Yeah, 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 totally. Okay. I, yeah, but, and so, I've never really wanted to own a house. I've, I've, I, I really worry that my friends who do own houses, uh, it's, their whole life is tied up in this thing. Well, I can almost say, like, we're almost trained on a narrative to go buy into that system. Hey, we could go on for that. I think we may wish it in now, because we just had a quote from a film, which is quite an inspirational <laughs> yeah. place to end on. Enjoy your practice tonight, um, and thanks for... Agreeing to come on in. It's been great meeting you. Thanks for having me, Lewis. Okay, mate. It's been nice to meet you properly.
in a corner by the square. The usual crowd were assembled, and old Joe McKinney was there. He was standing. St. James Infirmary I saw my baby there She was stretched out On a long white table So pale, so cold So faint 